Well, good morning. Um, welcome to the church plant. This is our fifth Sunday. <laughs> um, and God has been working in the, the core group of people that started to gather in the summer. We, we didn't even have a Sunday morning gathering. We would, we would gather during the week, in the, in, in one evening a week, and we would pray and invite friends. And so over time, we're just seeing our, our little family grow and grow and grow. Um, and, and this passage we're looking at today, it's really exciting to me to look at this together because we're at this stage where we can, we can really like dig in to what the Bible says about the church and say, let's, let's do this thing, right? Uh, let's, let's be the kind of culture that the Bible is describing in regards to the local church. Um, and it's, it's pretty high and lofty, okay? Like this passage in particular is like way up there. Um, but I want us to talk about what it might look like on the ground and how the Lord might uh, form that in us. And this is really what this, this Romans 12 is about. It's about the focus on Christ, the worship of Christ, and how that forms a church. Uh, it, it keeps them unified, but it also uh, launches them into this like diversified way of serving in terms of their gifting and their uh, even their backgrounds, their cultures, this beautiful diversity unifying around Jesus. And the diversity that we've been t- that we talked about last week, if you, if you didn't uh, weren't able to be here for that, you can uh, listen to this on our website or on a podcast. Um, is the diversity of gifts, the gifting that people have in the church and how those work together. Um, and then this week is more back to this unified idea. It's like, okay, we, we sort of split off like a sports team having uh, practice. And it's like, okay, you work on your position, you work on your position, you work on your position, and then you come back together on game day, and it's like, we're just going to do whatever it takes to win. And so this passage feels a little bit like that. It's, it's like, oh, look at these diversity of gifts. And then get back together. All right, let's, let's do the thing, right? Let's win. And the win is love. It's, it's not winning games. It's, it's, it's love. And this is what the Apostle Paul talks about in this passage. Um, and interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul does the same thing in, in another place in the book of 1 Corinthians where he talks about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and he talks about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14 and then right in the middle of those two chapters he puts the chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. And so this is a consistent thing, right? It's, it's, it's the same thing he's doing here in Romans. He talks about seven gifts in the passages before this one that Alberto just read and then he talks about Love. So what is love? That's, that's, that's what we want to answer this morning. What is biblical love? And then how on earth can we actually express biblical love? Um, love, obviously, is a very misunderstood concept in our culture. But a very important concept. We sing about it. We write books about it. I mean, it, it is really important to us. We may not know what it is, but we really care about it a lot. And both we care about being able to give love 
can receive love. Um, and so I think for the most part, people are trying to figure this out. How do I give and receive love? Whether it's in a marriage or in a friendship or in an organization or what, you know, family, parent, children, everyone's trying to figure this out, giving and receiving uh, of love. And what, what the Bible doesn't really do that much is say, well, this is our definition of love. Love is blank, right? But what it does do is say, these are the characteristics of love. And that's what Paul does here. And so this is what we're going to look at. We look at characteristics, and then we'll talk about how do I actually express this kind of love. So again, Romans 12, verse 9 and 10, love must be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So lots of little great bullet points for a sermon, right? Um, let love be genuine. This is the first characteristic. It's genuine. Literally, what's translated there is without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy. Now, Greco-Roman world, uh, hypocrite was used to describe an actor. It wasn't a negative term. It was someone playing a part in a play. And so just like, um, you know, like Tom Cruise, he is really not a fighter pilot. I didn't know if you guys knew that. He does not know how to fly fighter planes. He's ridden in some, and he, you know, he thinks he's kind of a big deal because of that. But he, you put him in a fighter plane, he cannot fly a fighter plane, but he can act like a person who flies a fighter plane, right? That's, that's a Greco-Roman, like, technical hypocrite. Uh, what the writers of the Bible do is, is take that word and, and use it to communicate something that's, that's a negative thing. And that is pretending to be something that you're not in the church. Right? Pretending to be something that you're not. Kind of play acting, playing a part. And he's saying that this, this biblical love, this Christian love, uh, is actually genuine. It's not pretending. It's not playing a part. And, and, it, and it gets at the essence of true love, right? That true love is not just good actions. It's like good intentions. There's an internal component to it. There's an external component to it. And this represents the love of God. We've just sang about uh, the love of God, right? Um, and this is, this is God's love. It's not just right actions. He doesn't do the right thing and then say, but internally, I'm really, I hate your guts, but I'm going to do the right thing. because that's the, No, he actually has affection for us. Actually internally motivated to then do the right thing, the loving thing externally. Uh, Jesus gives this command to love in, in much the same way, right? John 13, verses 34, 35, Jesus says this to his disciples, a new command, commandment I give to you, that you love one another. I'm like, okay. How should we do that, Jesus? Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And then he goes on to say, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so he is saying to them, this genuine love that God expresses, that he has expressed to those disciples, they can express that to each other. 
and that that will be so distinct in the world that the world will on the outside look in at the church loving each other that well and they will say, surely those are the disciples of Jesus. It, it's like that unique, that distinct, right? Um, there's an old, old song that I grew up singing that the chorus was, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And so this, this is partly what he's saying. He's saying, church, you're going to love so well that the, the world's going to look in and say, surely these people know something about God because that love is not something I see out here. Right? Genuine love. Um, he then, the next phrase says, abhor or hate what is evil. And this feels like a topic change. Um, I don't think it is because he talked about love beginning before that and he talked about love after that. So I'm pretty sure it's part of the love conversation, hating uh, what is evil. And so first thing, what is evil? Like what does that word even mean? A um, couple ways to think about it. So one is that sin and the suffering that comes from sin is evil. That's one way to think about it. Um, another way to think about it is anything that's outside of God's order. So inside God's order is, is goodness. Outside of God's order is a lack of goodness, which evil is not really a, it's not, it's not offering anything. It's a lack of something, right? And so it's outside of the order, the goodness of God. And he's saying, those who truly love, they hate evil. They hate what's sin and the suffering that comes from sin. They hate what comes out of, uh, it, it, that is in uh, disorder or outside of God's order. This seems consistent with 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, where he, uh, Paul writes that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So this idea that genuine love doesn't, it doesn't compromise the truth. Uh, it is tactful in speaking truth. It is compassionate in speaking the truth. It, it is patient in delivering the truth. But it doesn't compromise the truth. Any genuine lover is going to hate evil. Right? And that's, a hard, that's hard for us to swallow, I think, in our, in our current uh, culture especially. Um, our culture tends to depict love as, I'm going to let you do whatever you want. Whatever you feel like doing or being, I'm just going to let you be free to do that and that this is how we love people. But even the culture has things that it condemns, right? So there's, there's certain things that the culture is like, no, you can't do that. But what's interesting is that's really not done in love, is it? Uh, it's a cancellation of the person, oftentimes. It's not, I'm speaking this truth because I love you and I want us to stay in relationship. It is, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm rejecting you. I am pushing you out of my relationship. Right? And, and the Apostle Paul here is saying, no, no, no. no. You, you can actually hate evil. You can actually stand against evil and stand for truth and do that in a loving way. Um, it, it does show love <laughs> to hate evil. 
It really does. I mean, think about this. It shows love to victims of evil. When we hate evil, those that have been victimized by sin and suffering, they're loved. It also shows love to the perpetrator of evil. Because leaving a person in their evil, leaving a person in doing something that is outside the order, uh, good order of God, it's, it's not really loving. Right? Uh, it's also loving to the world. To hate evil in the church. Now, I, this passage in Romans 12 is really to the church. I don't think it's saying in this passage, go out in the world and you know, get your... You know, get your sword and go after all the evil in the world, although there, there's a place for some of that. This is really about the church. It's really about hating evil in, in the church. Um, there was a, a cover-up uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention not, not too long ago, a few months ago, that came out. That the people in the, in the upper echelon, kind of the top, top leadership, were covering up things that had happened in regard to sexual assault, right? And this is like the denomination that we're, we're a part of, right? And they had covered it up thinking, oh, this will be better in the long run. This will protect the churches. This will protect the organization. This will protect the global mission that we have all these churches giving money to. And it didn't do any of that, right? It was unloving to the victims to cover up this kind of evil, right? It was unloving to the perpetrators to, to cover up that evil and let them go free. It was unloving to the world because now the world is going, uh-huh, yep, that's what I, I told you that. That was true about the church. That's, that's what they're like. And then the gospel itself and the people of God uh, are seen in a light that is, is not proclaiming the good news, right? So hating evil Right? It is consistent with genuine love. And that hating evil um, doesn't have to be uh, just like heinous sins, right? Honestly, in day-to-day -day church life, it's more like hating uh, gossiping about each other, right? Or hating being greedy instead of generous within the church. Uh, it's hating uh, objectifying sexually other people. Uh, it's hating uh, prayerlessness or being uncaring or hating apathy or any number of things that's called out by God's word. That stuff's evil too. And that's the more normal kind of evil <laughs> that needs to be hated. And so it's a loving thing to hate evil, but notice... He couples that with the next characteristic, which is hold fast to what is good. Right? Hold fast to what is good. Cling to what is good. Um, this is so helpful that, that, that he puts these together. That at the same time that we're calling out evil, we're also holding fast to good. And I think it, it's really easy for us to hold fast to evil. Sometimes that's our own doing of evil, but even if it's not us doing it, we can hold fast to the realities of evil in our own fellowship, right? And gossip about it and think about it and get really upset about it and get worked up about it. And we're literally clinging to evil. And that, that's, 
It's like, no, hate that, right? Reject that. And as you reject that, then grab on to something else, which is hold on to what is good. And what is good, right? Well, God's good. God's word is good. God's actions are good. And in regard to what it means for us as a congregation, we're holding on to the good that we believe God is doing in each other and in our congregation. We're holding on to that more than we're focused on the evil, although we hate the evil. We're willing to lovingly call out evil. We're not clinging to that. We're holding and clinging to God and his word and what he wants to do in the church. The Apostle Paul, he's so good at this. His letters are full of this kind of clinging to good in spite of how messed up people are and how messed up churches are. Um, to the church at Corinth, which is like the most messed up church in the Bible, uh, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's holding on to the good, even though the church at Corinth has got tons of problems. Right? To the Philippian church, he says this, I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Holding on, clinging to, regardless of the problems that need to be called out, the issues that are being faced, he's like, I know this is true. God's at work in this church. God is working the individuals in this church. And I'm trusting God to bring this to completion. To the Ephesian church, we looked at this last week. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, holding fast to the goodness of God and God's work in the church, in the individuals, in the community that is the church. And because we have that clinging to good going on, it gives us the courage to call out the evil. Because if you don't believe that God can do good in people, why bother calling out the evil? It's a waste of time. I mean, it's just going to make the person mad or it, it, it's going to distance them. If, if there's no good to cling to, it doesn't even make sense to call out sin in each other's lives. But if there's good, then it makes total sense. Because we're trusting that, that we all have parts of our lives that are in process, that need repentance, that need confession. And as we enter into that together and call that evil out together, we, we know that God's moving us to a new place of good. And we cling to that. So I know as a pastor, when, when I would refuse, when I would see something going on in someone's life and... I would refuse to, to, to have a conversation with them, lovingly bring that to their attention. Um, I, I would oftentimes, I have these conversations with my wife where, where she'd go, uh, you not doing that is unloving. <laughs> and I'd be, oh, it feels loving because I'm not hurting their feelings. And she'd be like, no, that's not loving. Right? And so taking the risk to move into that risky space. And it is a risky space. Make, make no mistake about it. To have honest conversations with folks uh, and to let them have those conversations with me. 
but, but Paul is, he, he is giving us this vision of hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. And that this is genuine love. Like if we're not doing that, it's not really genuine love. It's smiles, it's pleasantries, it's pats on the back, it's, it's surface conversations. Um, and that stuff, you know, it's important to have some kind of surface <laughs> pleasantries. But if we're not getting down to, hey, how are we growing? How are we repenting? Um, we're not hating evil, clinging to what is good. Now, I think if the passage just stopped right there, it wouldn't be, that'd be pretty good. I mean, I, that's some good stuff. I, I think it would be really helpful. But he doesn't stop there. He then tells us how this loving community feels. He kind of gives us texture for it. And, and what he says is, love one another with brotherly affection. And so what he tells us is, it feels like family. It feels like family. This, this hating evil, clinging to good, genuine love, the, the, the texture of it is family. Um, and so it, it, it isn't just genuine. It isn't just uh, calling out or clinging to good. It's being family. Um, this, this word translated brotherly affection uh, is Philadelphia, right? city of brotherly love. Uh, and uh, it's, it's this word that was used for familial relationships, familial affection. Uh, English Standard Version tries to get at that by saying brotherly affection. It doesn't just say brotherly love. It tries to say, say affection. So it's getting at that, that it's familial love. Um, and so there's so much to this image of, of a family and loving like a family. Um, there is emotional warmth to it. There's unshakable commitment to each other. Uh, there's enjoyment of each other's company. There's sacrificial you know, giving to one another. Um, one way you, you could describe it, this is what uh, family and marriage counselors call secure attachment. So there's this whole theory, a whole attachment theory that I, I, I'm kind of new to it, but it's, it, it's really helpful. Um, and the idea is there's certain behaviors in a relationship that contribute to secure attachment. There's certain behaviors in a relationship that contribute to an insecure attachment, right? Depending on your family, you grew up either securely attached to your family or insecurely attached to your family. But make no mistake, you're attached to your family, right? And so this is where we first learn how to do relationships. So for some of you, your family experience really brings a lot of good things to the table because you've already experienced secure attachment. You know how to do secure attachment with each other. You know how to give either, you know, give brotherly or sisterly affection. And it feels natural to you. For others, not so much. And so we come into the church and, and we're like, I'm not exactly sure how to do this. But the exciting thing is we have a new family now that we can work this stuff out. We can learn. We can call each other out on stuff. We can encourage each other. We can, we can grow in this kind of familial affection, this familial kind uh, of love. And these little attachment behaviors, I mean, it could be texting a person during the week, say, hey, I think I'm thinking about you. Uh, calling somebody up, hey, I'm praying for you. Um, hey, let's go get you know, some, some dinner. Let's, let's spend some time having coffee. Let's, hey, can you help me with this thing I'm doing? You know, there's just so many different things that 
are just little touches that create this sort of secure attachment. And uh, this, this is in part this whole familial uh, affection that uh, Paul is talking about. Um, how, you, how you do this, I think, is summed up really well in the, in the last little phrase here. And I think this is partly what he's doing here. He's like, have, have this sisterly, brotherly affection. And then he's like, okay, this is how you do that. And, and he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Right? Um, what that means is you give value or weight to the other person right, over yourself. So Paul says this to the Philippians in, in chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's, that's a good description of honor. How do you honor someone? Consider someone more significant than yourself. Doesn't mean you're not significant. Doesn't mean you don't have you know, significance inherently. You do. Doesn't mean that you don't need love too. You do. But what Paul's saying is, you try to outdo the other person in showing honor and giving them weight, giving them value uh, in the way that you interact. Uh, many ways to do this, right? One is just drawing attention away from yourself and onto the person, other person, right? Asking questions of the person, like meaningful questions, not just the, the surfacey questions, but like meaningful questions that get down to how the person's doing and what they've experienced over the week. Uh, showing appreciation for them. Things about them that you appreciate, things they've done that you appreciate. Um, identifying with their emotional state. So that Paul describes this really well in this chapter, actually. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Um, again, marriage and family counselors call this emotional attunement. You attune to the other person, right? Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't walk in and the first thing is like, I'm having a horrible day. Now you should have a horrible day too, right? It, it's like, no, first it's like, how are you doing? What's going on? Oh, you're excited? Okay, I'm excited too, right? That, that's a way to show honor, right? It's a way to, uh, to, to, to build up and build up those, those relationships. Here's a, one way to think about it. It was helpful to me. It's not, this isn't original to me is that you learn how to be a host as opposed to a guest, right? So when you're the host in your home, for instance, you're having a party, doorbell rings, you don't just sit on the couch and go, man, when is the guest going to open the door? Like, what is their problem, right? Are they that lazy? The door's unlocked. No, you don't do that. You host. You go to the door, you open the door, you say hello, you initiate the welcome, you bring them in, you say, can I take your coat or... Is, is there you know, anything you need or here's, a, here's something to drink? Oh, you don't know so-and-so? Let me introduce you to so-and-so. You are hosting the conversations. You're hosting everything in, in the room. You're showing them honor, right? And so, again, in the church, th this is the kind of behavior we want to encourage is that we're e each seeking to outdo the other in hosting, in, in honoring. Now, you may be saying, and I know this is what bubbles up in me, what about me? <laughs> what about my needs? Well, those are valid. And you do need someone to host you. You do need someone to ask you meaningful questions. You do need someone to meet tangible needs that come up during the week. 
you do need someone to text you and say, hey, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? You, you absolutely, right? And part of being in a covenant community of a local church is you're trusting that those other church members will do that for you. But you really don't have control over them. What you have control over is you. <laughs> and so what Paul describes is, hey, you worry about honoring the other. And they will worry about honoring you. It's a beautiful mutuality of, of honor that's supposed to occur in a local body. And it, and it is a beautiful, beautiful vision of uh, what, what, what could be, right? I mean, he says, outdo one another. Do you hear the mutuality in that? Of back and forth, right? And so this, this honoring of one another. Um, that's different than, I want people to reach out to me, and I'm going to wait over here and see if they will, you know. And then the other person is doing the same thing. Like, they won't reach out. They won't talk to me. I'm just going to wait until they do. And what happens in those scenarios? Just distance, and then more distance, and then more distance, and then it's, there's nothing left. Right? As opposed to, no, I'm going to turn toward that other person. I'm going to initiate with them. I'm going to honor them. I don't know if they're going to do it back. That's on them. Like, if they want to do that, they can. But I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to obey this passage that's been given to me in the Word. And it's, this is a mind renewal type way of behaving, is it not? I mean, this is, this is not how we would naturally trend, most likely, most of us, myself included. Now, I preach that sermon to myself. And I go, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't do this, Lord. I can't, I, I, I can't love in this way, right? Like, Lord, I, I want to ignore or participate in evil, right? Uh, I, I, I don't want to cling to good, especially when I'm tired and grumpy and fatigued, right? Or, or I don't, uh, don't want to honor others. I want people to honor me. I want them to think about me. I want, I want texts from people. I, I want to be prayed for, right? And then even if I do this stuff, God, I fear I'll just, I'll be pretending. I'll be pretending that I can fly fighter jets, but I really can't. I'm just pretending. I'm a hypocrite. I'm not, I'm not genuine. And this is, this is where we need to gospel ourselves, right? This is what God saved us from. Our inability to love was one of the things he saved us from. Our inability to hate what is evil, cling to what is good, to genuinely love people and honor them in an in, in in actual genuine way. Right? Even though we know that's how we should be, the Lord has not only saved us from those sins and that, that condition, but he's also given us grace in the gospel for us to be transformed so that we do look like this passage. Right? Uh, 1 Peter 1, says, I, I was amazed when I, when I was reading this this week and how it fit, and I just, he, he starts off with this very high bar, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, right? Does that not sound like what we just looked at in Romans 12, 
Right? But then he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And so we see there this high bar of love within the church. And then he says, you know what? You can do this. Why? Because you've been saved. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been given transforming grace because of what Christ has done for you when he died on the cross. This beautiful image of the imperishable seed. This, uh, Paul and other um, New Testament writers love this idea of this living thing that seems like a small thing and you put it in the dirt and out of this dirt comes this plant. And the gospel's like that. It's like this gospel's planted in you and you receive it and that in, in the dirt, so to speak, of your heart, and then it grows. And it brings about supernatural life that can then be lived out in the local church. And so this is how we become what these passages in Romans are describing. And so I think there's some different ways to respond to this. Um, one may be, that you've, you've never received that good news by faith, that Christ died for you in your place to forgive you your sins, to bring you in relationship with him, but maybe you've never received that, right? So that's step one, because out of that then comes the supernatural transformation that occurs where we can actually live these passages out. Otherwise, you're just going to be discouraged, you're going to grit your teeth this week. And go, okay, I'm going to hate evil. I'm going to cling to what is good. I'm going to be genuine. Try harder this week. That, that's, that doesn't work. Admitting, God, I, I am not that person. God, save me. Forgive me. Give me a new life so that I can actually live out um, this kind of love. It may be that uh, you're at least ready to explore. You're like, okay, I want to know more. What, who is Jesus? What did he do? What is, why does that matter? Um, and I would encourage you to, to, to talk to me or talk to someone uh, here in the room and just start exploring that. Because this is, again, this is step one. Without this, can't really move to the next step. If, if you are in Christ, you, you have come to that realization of your need for what Christ has done. Then I think there's some other responses that are probably appropriate. So one is... For, for me, honestly, um, just confession of unbelief, right? Read that passage, and you're like, uh, God, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if people around me can do it. I'm just going to confess that to you. Right? Some of that may be coming from your own family background. <laughs> where you're like, I am so jacked up. I don't know if I could do that with other humans. I, I don't know if I can, I can love like that. And so just confessing that to God, not, not saying, I'm going to ignore that, I'm just going to stuff it and try harder this week. That, that just does not lead to transformation. So just confessing that unbelief. Or it could be, you have been in some church settings, and you're looking at that passage, and you're like, ain't no way. Ain't no way any church people are going to be like that. Confess that. Confess that to God. Confess that unbelief. God... This is what I'm feeling right now. This is what I'm thinking about this. I confess that to you. I, I pray you give me the faith to believe that a church could have genuine love, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, love each other like family, 
and ask the Lord to, to, to build that uh, in, in you, in, in your heart. Um, and part of that is admitting that on our own, we're not going to be able to live this out. We need help. We need help. And um, God is more than willing to give the transforming grace um, for us to do this. And then to do it. Now notice I, don't, I didn't start there. I didn't start with, come on, do it. Do it more. Do it better. That's not a real Christian way of thinking about transformation, right? We start off with, let me confess where I'm at, God. Let me put, just give myself to you, Lord. Help me. I need your help. I need your forgiveness for not doing this. I need help to do this. But then there comes a time when you do it. Where you call out evil, you see evil. You cling to what is good in the lives of the people that are around you. You seek to to love others with this familial affection that includes honoring them. How how could you do that this week? How could you do that with the people in this room? And then do it. Go for it. And is it going to be perfect? No. Uh, Are you going to feel... Like, it's sort of genuine, but not, yeah. But, but just trust that gospel grace is going to change you and transform you. I mean, this is, this is what I have to do, and I'm the, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to have this stuff down, right? But no, I'm needing to confess. I'm needing to ask for more grace to move in my relationships, to trust, to grow. And uh, you're in the same you're in the same boat. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. There's some treasure in there. <laughs> That's such a tiny little couple of verses. Um, really has so much truth in it, so much um, to equip us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, we just we we come to you humble humbled by this word, um, but also excited that we could, uh, by your Spirit's power and the grace of the gospel, we we can live these things out. You wouldn't command us uh, to do something and then not equip us to do it, but we know that you and the power of the Spirit, you you are at work in this church bringing this about, and um, so we pray we'd be sensitive to uh, the truth of your word would be sensitive to the, uh, the prompting of your spirit. Uh, that, Lord, you would, you would be a good teacher for us. You would help us uh, to live this out and to grow uh, into this vision of what we read in Romans 12. And uh, thank you for e- each one here, uh, their giftings, their, uh, their passions, their backgrounds. Lord, all these things that you are starting to bring together and unify into a family and I pray that, uh, that you would be doing that even more, even now, as we are sitting under your word, as we're growing uh, in, in the gospel, and even as we worship you through singing uh, in a minute. And so we thank you for this morning, thank you for your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.